Rand Fishkin, welcome to Unstuck in Traffic. Chris, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, um, I don't know if you recall, but um, uh, we still have not met physically in person yet. Um, and where we first met was actually in traffic. I think it was last year in Fremont. You were running through the snow. Oh my gosh! <laughs> across a crosswalk, and <laughs> I nearly ran you over. So um, I look forward to meeting you in better circumstances <laughs> in perfect in in person. I'd love to just hear a little bit in your words um, who you are and uh, kind of what makes you tick. Oh man, gosh, that's a heavy question. On the professional side, I'm a college dropout who started a consultancy with my mom, Jillian, uh, in the world of web design and eventually shifted to SEO and started a blog that became a very successful sort of content marketing engine for a software business. Uh, today that business is called Moz and I was the, um, I was the founder and CEO there, CEO for seven years and grew it from about, you know, zero to $30 million in revenue and raised a few rounds of venture capital. Um, I left that company, uh, February 28th of this year and started a new software company on March 1st because, you know, you got to take a little vacation. Uh, yeah, yeah. Everybody needs some time, at least a few hours off between companies. And that new company is called Spark Toro. It is uh, not in the SEO field, but still in the web marketing field, uh, trying to help marketers identify the uh, people and publications that influence their audiences. And um, I'm not sure exactly if the practice has a name, but we've been calling it audience intelligence. And on the personal side, um, I am... Uh, the husband of Geraldine DeRoyter, that's probably my most uh, proud accomplishment. Geraldine, of course, is um, a hilarious writer and author. Uh, she runs the blog uh, everywhereis.com and uh, published a book last year called All Over the Place. Um, this year in particular, you know, since, since leaving Moz has been a really... Uh, awesome one on the on the personal and relationship front not just with Geraldine but with a lot of uh, a lot of friends in my life so um, yeah I'm a lucky guy well yeah I really appreciate that background and you know I I first came across Moz and across your work when I was uh, when I was at Amazon and the beginner's guide to SEO was I think the first oh, sure. the first content that I really dove into from you one thing I, I love is in conversations is energy shifts. <laughs> and I just, I noticed a really great energy shift when you started talking about Geraldine and just the, um, how she's just your marriage to her is one of your most proud, your proudest accomplishments. I'd love to hear just a little bit about how she uh, makes you a better you, if you, if you don't mind. Yeah. I mean, I think that we have, we have a very special very equitable, very love-filled partnership. And, you know, that's gotten both of us through uh, challenging times in our, you know, um, respective lives and life life together. And, you know, kind of like, I mean, so Moz was a very long-term professional relationship, right? I dropped out of college in 2001 and was at the company for 17 years. And my relationship with Geraldine actually started in 2001 as well. So she and I have been together for <laughs> almost as long as, as high school sweethearts, right? And, you know, being together through all those ups and downs and, you know, through 
very early adulthood, sort of late adolescence, and then being through our early 20s and our professional career development and me building this company and her sort of working to support uh, both of us for for several years at the start of Moz. Yeah, it's powerful. It's, it's kind of fun having all this history with someone. Um, I think that's that's actually fairly unique today. You know, not a lot of not a lot of folks we know have been um, in each other's lives that long. Yeah, I know, and I congratulations because it is it is rare to have that kind of longevity, and um, and clearly you've been through some tough times, <laughs> and and um, you know obviously I know it's not always easy, but to see how it's made both of you better, that's I really appreciate you sharing yeah. that. No, of course. So. Um, I'd love to hear just a little bit how you kind of what Rand looks like when he's functioning at peak, mm -hmm. you know, when you're kind of in, in flow or just it's like, this is what I'm wired to do. What what does that look like? Yeah, I. So I think probably one of my best skills is written communication. So I have a relatively easy time blogging or writing or replying to emails, um, composing content, those types of things. I think that's always been a, a strength of mine and something that I've been able to rely on. I have a reasonably good ability to take uh, complex information and make it simple and more accessible to other people. I think that's what helped build up, you know, Moz and, and helped, um, for example, like, like you mentioned earlier, the, the beginner's guide to SEO. Right, taking a topic that at the time was not well broken down and not very accessible and the search engines themselves had made very uh, opaque, intentionally so, and making that more accessible to people, that's um, that's a strength for me. And I'm sort of odd in, in terms of workflow. I think I, you know, I can work uh, 60 hours in a week or 20 hours in a week and oftentimes get the same amount done because if I can find those few hours of, you know, sort of pure, unadulterated powering through whatever it is, my, you know, my task list, um, I can get a tremendous amount accomplished in a short period of time. And then I can bang my head against the wall for you know, the rest of a week <laughs> and get not much done. So I've, I've actually given myself a little more permission this year and with SparkToro to embrace that. You know, rather than rather than spending a lot more hours pounding my head against the wall, wait for the flow to happen, um, and then lean into it when it's there, and worry about other things when it's not there. I love that. And how do your emotions like? What happens if you don't mind my asking with your emotions as you come in and out of that flow? Is it? I think for a long time, uh, my primary motivator has always been guilt. I have that. <laughs> I have mm -hmm. that inherent sort of, oh gosh, I should be doing X or I should, I, I owe uh, X or Y or Z to myself or to my readers or to this person who asked me for this favor or, you know, this friend who needs me to read and, re and edit their book or the 50 people in my inbox who need help with various items. Um, maybe not the healthiest motivator, but it works really well for me. Yeah, it definitely drives productivity. <laughs> I um, and I'm I'm someone that comes. I I'm wired very similarly. Um, but I think one thing that I've just noticed about you through your work is just a generosity there. So I I really appreciate 
you being vulnerable because there's very few people that I've seen that are vulnerable about the struggle <laughs> and then willing to admit it and willing to change. So thank you for that. Yeah, no, I agree with you that I think it's, um, it's unfortunate that there are so many people who are very heavy amplifiers of what I think we're taking to call uh, hustle porn now, right? Which is this idea of, you know, always working and um, putting in crazy hours and whatever they want to call it, grinding, hustling, crushing it, uh, et cetera, versus peeling those layers back and saying, uh, what is what does great work actually look like? And my my sense is that a lot of people who are hustling are actually a, more like you and I, right? They they may be putting in 60 hours a week, but I bet 35 of those hours are not very productive and ones that they probably could delete. I'd love to now just kind of step back a little bit to, if you don't mind, like Rand as a kid. <laughs> so to oh, something, okay. something that you did, whether you, something you wrote, you created, you built, et cetera, that kind of really exhilarated you, made you feel alive. And not that, you know, other people said, hey, this is great, but where you felt like, hey, I did something great. Because uh, I, I, I love just kind oh. of hearing those connections from people into kind of your work now. Yeah, fascinating. Um, that is a question I have not received before. But I think one of the one of the things that I did early on as a kid, one of the things I, I remember pretty darn well is my, it wasn't my first computer, but maybe my, my second or third was like a 386. I don't know if you remember these from like the... Oh yeah, I had a 280. 19, yeah, 1991, 92, something like that. Right, so I, you know, you dial into your friend's bulletin board with your modem, which was the the early precursor to internet activity, and then you know, be able to. Dial Dad picks up. Phone. Dad picks up the phone and says, "Get off the yeah. internet," and it disconnects you. <laughs> yeah, no, doesn't even have to say anything. Just pick up the phone. And you're done. Exactly. Um, but uh, I remember I had. I had done that at one point. I had I'd gotten a video game. The game required, I think it was four megabytes of RAM. Not gigabytes, megabytes of RAM. You know, so <laughs> a very, very tiny amount. But the computer that we had only had a, you know, it had three slots for RAM and it had a one megabyte, you know, RAM chip in each one, in each of those three slots. So I only had three. The game required four. And I learned to program because I wanted to play this game so badly that I had to fool my computer into thinking, into telling the game that it had the minimum amount of RAM and before <laughs> it would start up. And then it worked fine. The game actually worked totally fine. It just had this one process that it would check at the start, how much RAM does your computer have? Ta -da! That's amazing. That was sort of an early precursor to uh, building websites. Well, cool. I'd, I'd love to shift now into um, a section of the podcast that I call The Drive. So I'd love to hear kind of, uh, first of all, about your your daily commute. Sure. Yeah. So for most of my career, I've actually walked to work uh, intentionally. So I I think we we picked the first, what was the first SEO Moz office. Um, my mom and I put that in the University District of Seattle, and I uh, moved to an apartment that was about maybe a 30 minute walk north of there over the years i just sort of moved and followed the office as it grew and expanded we moved to ballard at the 
was that just about a year ago and so my last maybe five months five six months at Moz uh, were the first time in years that I'd required any real commute uh, via bus my wife and I jointly own a car but um, yeah I don't uh, I don't I don't drive very much the last what six months seven months that I've been at Spark Toro my commute has been to my backyard uh, the the previous owners of this this house um, modified a like a garden shed and turned it into an art studio slash office. And so I, nice. I just converted that into my office. And now it's uh, my co-founder and I affectionately call it Shed Toro. So commute is down the stairs, out the back door, across the garden, into the shed. Nice. <laughs> what like when I guess when you think about um, then your commutes historically, where you had a little bit more time from home to the office, um, what makes for an emotionally healthy trip to work in terms of that time for people. I know for me, when I was, you know, commuting sometimes three hours a day and physically stuck in traffic, but also emotionally yeah. stuck, um, what would an emotionally healthy commute look like for you versus, um, when it's, when you're, when you are stuck, what does this look like or feel like? I think for me, you, you've got to be in a good headspace at work before you can have a health commute there, right? It's not, I don't think those things are divorced from one another. Now, that being said, you know, it is, it's ideal if you don't have to drive or if you do have to drive, you don't have to do so for very long because all the research we've seen, you know, about commutes is just that your unhappiness levels increase dramatically. The longer your commute is, the more of it's spent in traffic. It's something like an hour of commute time is worth like $25,000 um, in terms yep. of, you know, relative satisfaction with your job. When, uh, you know, talking about kind of shifting over to like kind of what drives and motivates you, I'd love to hear, um, you said earlier that the guilt can be a motivator. Um, and then in terms of... Um, Kind of the positives what are some of those positives that kind of drive you when it comes it comes to your work uh i'm i'm kind of an analytics nut so i you know i look at my google analytics and my my twitter analytics and um my numbers pretty frequently and i love to kind of challenge myself to do better next time yeah i think i have that self-competitiveness inside right i'm always trying to one-up what i did last time when you're starting something new, I think for a lot of folks, they're not sure what they should be building, right? What what should I be working on right now? So having that kind of self-competitiveness is a really helpful factor because it, it gives you the motivation to do things that you otherwise maybe wouldn't. And where would you say the kind of the, the drive comes from to, or the willingness to be vulnerable to share your struggles openly? Um, and share your failures as well as your successes. Where, where does that come from for you? Hmm. I have some anger uh, at folks who don't tell the whole story about what makes them, what makes for success or failure. Or I think that when we selectively exclude pieces of information, don't tell the whole story, we falsify this narrative that, um, 
that I think the United States has a big problem with right now, which is this idea that you can, you know, that anyone can be successful, that it doesn't matter where you come from or what your background is, um, that, you know, you can make it. Uh, and by make it, what we really mean is compete in the desperately unfair rigged game of late stage capitalism, um, which, which sort of sucks for almost everyone, but is really awesome for 1% of people or so. Yep. Um, yeah. So that, that drives me kind of bananas. And I, I think a big part of why I talk about it is, is fighting against that. And the other part is, is fighting against my own past, right? Where I struggled, but didn't talk about it and just really hated the, the secrecy. You know, I talked about this in the, in the book in Lost and Founder, right? That my mom and I had gone deeply into debt with, with uh, the early, you know, consulting business and hidden that from, well, from everybody, but, but um, most importantly from my dad and uh, just how much of a nightmare that was. And so I think transparency is the antidote to that. You know, as hard as, as hard as it may be, it's so much better. And, you know, you write in one of your blogs that um, when you were growing up that your dad called you a, quote, high potential, low achiever kind of a kid. Um, yeah. I'm curious how that kind of feeds into kind of these drivers that you're talking about. For a long time, I was frustrated by that descriptor. But I think, actually, it's not that far off, which is often true, right? The things that perturb us the most are the ones that have a, a kernel of truth to them. Mm-hmm. If I were maybe more driven or willing to be a little a little more financially motivated, I could be more successful, at least by the, the weird yardstick that we uh, use in the modern age of how big is your bank account. But yep. I don't know. I, I'm, I'm making peace with, with even that as well. You know, you... You write uh, that depressed Rand is weird, so I'd love to hear kind of uh, what it looks like when when you're stuck, kind of shifting into this section now of the podcast that I call the stuckness, but I'd love to hear kind of what it looks like when, when you're stuck. Yeah. Stuck is very different than depressed. Yeah, depressed, I think, is a, you know, it's obviously a, a clinical condition. Yeah, I mean, I, I can't talk about a little bit of that if you have questions on that front. Yeah, and that would actually be, I would love to go to the depression component. For me, I appreciate you differentiating the two. For me, kind of the, the stuckness, has because the depression has been there so long, I kind of see them as one and the same. <laughs> but yeah, I would love to hear kind of you from your experience around the depression component. So, I mean, I think uh, I, I'm not that unique in my manifestation of depression, right? It makes for a very you know, negative worldview and outlook for me. Uh, I found myself stymied on creative fronts, like not able to come up with uh, reasonable and creative solutions to problems. I became very uncharismatic, at least inside my own organization, sort of uh, despite being CEO at, at the time. I, I felt incapable of creating change in the organization or you know, motivating my, my team, my executives. Uh, yeah, powerless. I think uh, powerless to sort of change my own situation, powerless to get enough sleep at night, powerless to 
be in a healthy mental place, powerless to change my company. That that's probably the best descriptor I could give. And and when you look back at kind of the time leading up to that, and obviously depression is very complex, right? <laughs> There's um, epigenetics and you know what's going on chemically and your diet and sleep, all these things can impact it, right? Um, were there things that were going on at that time, whether they were um, beliefs or things that were driving you or outside circumstances or other things that you think kind of contributed to that and it kind of all snowballed at once or did it really kind of sneak up on you? Yeah, I think it was certainly a combination of a lot of things, right? So things that Moz were going, I think technically they were going quite well, but um, so we, you know, we had gone from 100% year-over-year growth to about 50% year-over-year growth, which, let's face it, that is not very bad. That's that is just fine, um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right? But uh, you know, in my head, it was catastrophic, world-ending bad. Uh, in terms of stuff that was going on with me, I, you know, I've had um, chronic uh, pain. I have uh, degenerative disc disease, which I think, unfortunately, a lot of uh, a lot of Jewish people do. Um, turns out not awesome to breed only inside your tiny community for, you know, dozens of generations. <laughs> but uh, um, I th- I, so, yeah, weirdly enough, I did 23andMe and found out like, oh, man, I'm the first person in like, you know, 40 generations to uh, to marry a non-Jew. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so that I think was was definitely playing a role, right? I'd have back pain and leg pain and that contributes to non-sleeping and contribute to not getting exercise. And, um, I think I, I'm not sure. I think the pain was more compounded by the depression than the other way around, but it's always, you know, it's hard to, to know what the chicken and the egg is there. And what was it that happened or, um, the, what was the shift that kind of occurred to enable you to you know, get out of being stuck in that depression. I, I, don't, I don't know that it was, you know, one thing, right? For, yeah, I think for most people, it's not one thing. It's sort of a, a cascading series of slow, progressive events. And it certainly was for me too, right? I think I, I sort of felt like I was coming out a few months after I stepped down from being CEO, maybe six months after that. And, and it was probably a good year after that, that I, that I actually was back to a more fully functional um, part of myself. And I, I think that was, that's when I took on the project of, of, um, of writing a book. And how did your kind of the way you approached work and life, friendships, marriage, et cetera, kind of how did that shift when you came out on the other side of the depression? You know, obviously the person who knows me best is Geraldine and probably the person who was most affected by it was, um, was her as well, but she was always supportive throughout, um, I think, but also a little in, in kind of a no nonsense type of way. Yeah, buddy, you're, you're having a tough time, but you're going to get through it and you're going to be fine. And, you know, you take your time, um, but not a sort of, you know, hyperindulgent, like, I'm so worried about you. I think that was actually good for me in, in a way. And in terms of friendships, yeah, there were definitely, there were some friendships that I think suffered during my depression, especially people who were, um, who I described as sort of unrelentingly positive. 
um, those are tough people to hang out with when you are depressed. It's actually, um, people think that, you know, uh, just being sort of happy and upbeat is, is a way to combat or fight against depression. I don't, I don't know if that's true for other people. It wasn't true for me. They say misery loves company. I think misery actually likes company that has experience with misery. Agreed. Yeah. And I, and I think my, I think my experience is very similar to yours. And, you know, in terms of my depression, there wasn't one thing. It was <laughs> lots of experimentation, probably hundreds of things. Um, and yeah, those people that have been through it are the ones that have been most, most key for me as well. Um, I think as we kind of uh, shift into our, our last section, you know, that I call the practice, um, I'd love to hear if there are any kind of practices that you use, um, whether it's mindfulness or exercise or whatever that is to kind of stay healthy and um, to help yourself sleep at night, because I know you're a busy guy with a lot on your shoulders. Uh, yeah, I think certainly a few things help me. One is saying no to a lot, to most things, in fact. Um, you know, I get a lot of requests to contribute to things or you know, whatever, be on this show or you know, come to the city and speak. Um, and I have to say no to the overwhelming majority of them. And that uh, frustrates me in the moment. It makes me feel a little guilty and bad. But I think without that, I'd be um, just sort of a, a zombie person. Uh, I'm not really doing anything meaningful. I wouldn't have the, the, the core time that I need to make progress on, on hopefully building an exciting new company. Um, uh, I also, yeah, physical therapy uh, has been really helpful for me. So I have about 15 minutes of exercises that I do every morning pretty darn religiously. Uh, this morning, actually, is the first morning I've missed in about 60 days. So I'm feeling not great about that, but um, hopefully I will have some time later in the day to make up for that. Oh, and I'm also a Fitbit addict, so try and get my steps, <laughs> get my sleep, all that. Well, cool. And I think um, I really appreciate your your time and your generosity um, kind of sharing your story. I think the one question I would love to close on is um, if you were to kind of connect with someone who's who's dealing with um, depression, chronic pain, anxiety, that sort of thing, um, is there a question that you would ask them um, just to kind of help generate some curiosity in their own journey and kind of help them get unstuck? Ooh. Or is there an insight you would share with them? Yeah, that's a. Um, sometimes this works. Uh, actually, maybe not. Never mind. I, I was going to say you can ask them what would be helpful to them, but you know what? I think there is a correlation between depressed people, which is they almost never know what will help them. If they knew, they would be doing getting better. Because uh, it's not—it's not like it's fun. It's not something you want to do. You just don't know the way out, right? You're trapped in this labyrinth. You don't you don't know how to get out. And so um, I'm not even sure that a question is the right approach. I think a lot of times it's just sharing and being there and offering help, but not forcing someone to try and, you know, answer a difficult question in a difficult time. Yeah. Yeah. I, I really appreciate you sharing that. And that is exactly <laughs> if I rewind to kind of my darkest moment, that's exactly what I needed. It wasn't someone coming and telling me what to do or giving me another suggestion. It's someone just coming and being present and, and sitting there with me and in, in the middle of it. So. Yeah, I think it, and a lot of times I, I, I find it's really helpful to share your own experience too. 
that can mean a lot to someone in those situations, especially the just like planting the, the seed that there is a way out and that other people have been through this as well. Well, thanks, Ran. I, I really appreciate you sharing your story. And uh, I'm really excited to continue to kind of follow your journey and, and uh, wish you great success. Oh, thanks, Chris. Thank you for having me.